Good morning. You sound great. You look pretty good. Um, good to be together this morning. For joining us online, man, welcome. Glad that you are with us wherever you are. I'll extend the invitation to come join us in person. If you're uh, here in Hillsborough County or, I don't know, get on a plane. Florida's beautiful this time of year. So glad that we're all together. A couple weeks ago, my immediate family were all at the beach together. Spent several days at the beach, and it was great. Sunshine, all my kids were there. My grandkids were all there. And one evening, we were all down sitting on beach chairs, kind of watching the sun go down, and I told my daughter, you know, as we're sitting there, I said, okay, now we need to take the picture that everybody takes of just my legs and my feet with the beach in the the background, you know, the sunset in the background, hashtag living my best life. And my son-in-law started laughing. He goes, no, it'd be hashtag um, self-care. So then we all started laughing about all the pictures that we and everybody else puts on social media with hashtags. You know, we all have seen them. Pictures of somebody in the gym, hashtag putting in the work. Everybody loves to take pictures of their cats. Hashtag, crazy cat lady. Um, Sitting there with a a plate of food in front of you. We always take pictures of our food. Hashtag, treat yourself. (laughs) And of course, that that picture everybody takes in the bathroom, you know, with into the mirror. Hashtag, no filter. When you know there's several filters involved. Or if someone is sort of shaming someone or something, kind of like what I'm doing right now. Hashtag, sorry, not sorry. Uh, we all get it, right? And, and they're fun. I love that. You know, I love reading what people hashtag things. It's kind of fun. I did a little bit of research. They're pretty recent, really. 2007 is when the first hashtags showed up. Uh, a guy from Twitter suggested using them uh, as a way to, to serve as an indicator for, for users and for a- algorithms uh, that a piece of content relates to a specific you know, topic or subject. But if you're younger than 30, you got no problem with hashtags. If you're older than 50, you might have a little bit of problem with hashtags. But if you're older than 50, at least you understand labels, right? This morning, I want to talk to you about labels and hashtags. And what I really want to do this morning is to challenge all of us church people. Okay, this, this sermon this morning, this is for us. This is for us church people. And... If you don't really consider yourself to be a church person, don't check out, okay? Because uh, I think you might appreciate these thoughts as well, but, but uh, in fact, they might explain why you don't consider yourself to be a church person. But if you were raised like I was, in a church environment, you probably realized fairly early on that becoming a Christian is relatively easy. You know, it, it costs us really nothing to become a Christian, Jesus paid the price. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Now, we put our faith in Jesus. We we come to church, and we call ourselves Christians. The price has already been paid. Becoming a Christian is pretty easy. But, and you already know this, when you open up your Bible, you don't read anything about someone becoming a Christian. You don't even read about that in Scripture. What you read about is someone becoming a Jesus follower, becoming a disciple of Jesus. In fact, Christians, 
in the first century, Christians didn't even call themselves Christians. That's what non-Christians called them. And it wasn't always as a compliment, by the way. It, it was meant to be able to sort of define and differentiate these followers of Jesus. The term Christian, it only shows up three times in Scripture. And the writer Luke uh, lets us in on the first time that this word ever shows up in, uh, in use, the first time it's documented. It's actually used in the metropolitan city of Antioch. And interestingly, when Luke lets us in on this label, he also lets us in on what the first century people thought that label meant. Not necessarily what 21st century people think that label means, but he lets us in on what those people in the first century thought that label meant. So here's the first time that the label Christian is ever used. It's in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, which raises a question. Disciples. The disciples were called Christians. So who were the disciples? Well, he's not talking about the apostles. He's not talking about those, you know, those 12 men that Jesus chose. This is a much broader section of people, group of people. In Acts chapter 11, Luke is referring to those men and those women who uh, followed Jesus, who publicly associated with Jesus before the crucifixion and those men and those women who associated with Jesus after the resurrection. And it got to be a little bit confusing because you could be a disciple of any rabbi, you could be a disciple of any teaching, any movement, but those people in Antioch, they said, you know, we've got to somehow differentiate between Jesus' disciples and other disciples because these guys following Jesus, there's something unique about them. There's something very different about them. And so they come up with this label, Christian, which is very challenging for us. It's very challenging for me. You might be very comfortable with the label of Christian and the way the term's used in, in our time. But here's the question I want, I want to wrestle with this morning. You know, it's easy to say I'm a Christian. That's easy. But are you a Jesus follower? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Because that's a little bit tougher. Are we following or are we simply believing? Am I following his example, or am I just trying to be a good example? Do I see myself as a disciple of Jesus? Do I see myself as a follower of Jesus? Or do I just see myself as a Christian? And it's a really important question, and I'll tell you why. See, I can define and redefine the term Christian until I feel pretty good about myself. And you can define and redefine the term Christian until you feel pretty good about yourself. We all can define and redefine the term Christian until we feel pretty good about the life that we're living. And the reason that we can do that is because in Scripture, neither Jesus nor any other writer ever really defines what a Christian is. They don't talk about this is what a Christian is. But, <laughs> follower of Jesus... Disciple of Jesus? The Bible's pretty specific about what that means. And the Bible is pretty specific about what being a follower of Jesus entails. Becoming a Christian's easy. It won't cost you much of anything. 
but being a disciple of Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, it's going to cost you something. And it costs some people more than others. But what history tells us are the people that it costs the most they're the ones who seem to make the biggest difference. You know, we, we talk about this a lot. Jesus came into this world to, to introduce a new kingdom. You know, he, he's a king. He's introducing a kingdom. So if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, that means that we have to orient our entire lives. We have to focus. We, we have to be aligned with King Jesus. And I don't have to tell you how countercultural that is to what the world is saying around us. And Jesus made this point abundantly clear. I mean, right off the bat, he starts talking about this. He addresses this from the very beginning. Uh, we're going to go back to the Sermon on the Mount this morning. You know, maybe, the, probably, undoubtedly, the most famous sermon Jesus ever preached. Most quoted sermon Jesus ever preached. Probably the least applied sermon Jesus ever preached. But he starts this way. Matthew chapter 5. Now when he saw the crowds... There were always crowds with Jesus. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And here's our word. His disciples, his followers, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And I have a feeling that that crowd had no idea how lucky they were. They had no idea how fortunate they were that they were going to get to hear firsthand, live and in person, the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think anybody passed any leaflets out saying, welcome to the Sermon on the Mount. But little did they know that they were watching, they were listening to a message that was going to reshape, really, Western civilization and, and, and reshape values and norms for, for all time. And Jesus stands up in, in front of this large crowd. And he turns everything they'd ever heard upside down. He says, love your enemies. He told them, give away your stuff. In fact, if someone wants to borrow something from you, loan it to them. And don't even expect to get it back. He says, you can't be right with God unless you're right with your brother and sister. You can't have peace with God unless you have peace with your brother and sister. In fact, he said, if you're in the temple and you're standing in line, you're waiting to make a sacrifice, and like you've been standing a long time, in line a long time, and you're like, you're like only a couple people away from the front of the line, and then you remember that somebody has a problem with you, he said, leave your sacrifice right there. Get out of line. Go back. Make it right with that person. You can't be right with God if you're not right with your brother, your sister, your family, your friends. He said, hey, stop focusing on that little speck of dust in your neighbor's eye. Pay attention to yourself. Fix your own life. Then you can see clearly to help your brother. He said, go the extra mile. Serve each other. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, pay back evil with evil. Well, get even. Not in my kingdom. Not now. This sermon that they were listening to, this, this huge crowd that was listening to this sermon, it was epic. I, I mean, it turned everything upside down. It was a little bit uh, disturbing. But it was an unbelievable message. Read it for yourself. Jesus has this unbelievable message that he shares, and then he drops the mic and heads for Capernaum. Here's how chapter 7 ends. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, 
and not as their teachers of the law. And then the very next verse, when he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. Of course they followed him. This guy's amazing. He teaches with authority. It's, it's a street party. I mean, everybody's excited. Everybody wants to get close to Jesus. There's, there's a lot of excitement, a lot of things going on. And then this guy with leprosy shows up. In fact, this guy with leprosy actually goes and kneels right in front of Jesus, which would have been a little bit of a downer. You know, for the crowd at least. That would have made them all take a giant step backwards. They were, they were giving this guy a wide berth. You know, everything is going so well, and then this guy shows up. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now remember, Jesus had just taught, blessed are the poor in spirit. He had just taught, blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay, here's somebody who's poor in spirit. Here's somebody who's mourning. We heard what he said. What's he going to do? And Jesus, and you know this story. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. Immediately, he's cured of his leprosy, and the crowd goes wild. This is amazing. He's not just saying it. He's doing it. He's not just talking about it. He's actually living it out. All those things that we said, wow, that's really some teaching. This is who he is. This is what he's doing. Um, you know, all those things that he said we should do, and we were all thinking, no, that'll never work. You can never get away with that. He's going to do it anyway. And then, suddenly, unexpectedly, the mood completely shifts. Something happens, and for the most part, what happens next is, is pretty much completely lost on us. Uh, in fact, Matthew doesn't even bother to elaborate on what happens next completely because I don't think Matthew thought he had to. I think Matthew knew that whoever was there in person, whoever was reading this in the first century, they would have known exactly the atmosphere of what was going on. But Jesus is in the middle of this really feel-good momentum. Everything's going great. People are loving what they hear. They are loving what they see. And then everything shifts. In an instant, there is a tremendous amount of tension. Here's what happens. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. And the world stood still. A centurion came to him asking for help. This is beyond awkward. Love your enemy. Do for others. Go the extra mile. Well, that sounds good in theory. Those are excellent hashtags. But those inspirational means couldn't possibly be applied to this guy. I mean, helping other Jews, helping poor lepers, that's one thing. Helping a Roman centurion, uh-uh. That's a whole nother thing. Uh, that's somewhere we're not ready to go just yet, Jesus. And maybe you don't quite understand the tension uh, that's going on here. Let me give you a little bit of context, a little bit of history. About a hundred years before this conversation takes place, Rome invades Galilee and Judea, basically annexes uh, Galilee and Judea, and Rome takes over. Um, 
they desecrate the temple. They, they take all the, the, the gold and the, the valuable things out of the temple. They enslave thousands of Jews. Uh, they very much look down on the Jewish people. They are unsophisticated. They're superstitious. They're racist. Um, they serve a God who's not even able to handle the, the empire of Rome. It's the centurion's job to, to make sure that they stayed in their place. About 40 B.C., Herod the Great was named king of the Jews by the Roman Senate, even though he wasn't a Jew. He killed dozens of priests and rabbis. In fact, it was Herod the Great's son who had John the Baptist put to death, who was sort of a a folk hero to the working class. And then when Jesus is about in his 20s, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate is put in charge as governor it was Pilate who introduced crucifixion to Galilee in Judea in that time. Pilate also had people put to death. He also stole from the Jews. He offended them every time he could, usually on purpose. My point being, to the Jews in the first century, anything that had to do with Rome was tainted. It was just too much history. But it was even worse than that. This wasn't just an ordinary soldier. This was a Roman centurion. This is a centurion that's asking Jesus for help. This was a man who had earned his rank and his position through violence. He obeyed without question. And he obeyed without conscience. They were severe disciplinarians. Uh, History tells us that they had their own men flogged for disobedience. In fact, sometimes they had their own men put to death for severe disobedience. That's the context That's the situation. That's the emotion. That's the disgust that hangs in the air outside of the Capernaum that day that Jesus is confronted by this Roman centurion who asks him for help. This centurion represented everything that the Israelites had a reason to hate. This guy has blood on his hands. He has Jewish blood on his hands. And now he comes to Jesus and he asks for a favor. Now, I don't know about you, but for myself, when someone asks for my help, when someone asks for a favor, if it's someone that I don't know, that I have no history with, I'm usually pretty quick to help them if I can. You know, somebody needs a jump in the parking lot. You know, somebody needs a hand lifting something. Somebody needs a little bit of money. Well, this person's never done anything for me, but... He's never done anything against me either, so sure, I'll help. I'll do what I can. It kind of feels good, right? It feels right. But if someone asks for help who's offended me, who has hurt me over and over again, if someone comes to me and wants me to help them after they have hurt and injured my family or someone I love, i got to think about that. Now, that's difficult. Uh, That's a problem for me. It bothers me a little bit. Because becoming a Christian is easy. Following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, that doesn't always make sense to me. It goes beyond what's expected. It's difficult. It's hard. It's not normal. It's beyond normal. It's, It's almost super normal. Supernatural which is kind of Jesus' point. Remember, 
He just talked about on the Sermon on the Mount. If you do good to people you know are going to do good back to you, what is it for that? I mean, if you help someone who you know is going to help you back, what is that? Everybody does that. Well, the pagans do that. Everybody will help someone who they think has a reason to be helped. If they, they think that, okay, if I help this person, he's going to return the favor somehow. Everybody helps their family. Everybody helps the people they love. Now, what's that to you? Everybody can do that. That's, that's just hashtag uh, my tribe. Uh, that's hashtag squad goals, right? No, these are my people. This is my family. Sure, I love my family. I'm comfortable with my family because they have proven themselves worthy of my love and my help and my service, my attention, my time, my resources. Yeah, they're worthy. Sure, I'll help them. But now here stands this crowd. And here stands this centurion. And here stands Jesus. What's Jesus going to do? They'd heard what he preached. They heard what he said. What's he going to do? Now, most of you already know what he did. What he did, does, did. Because most of you know this story. But if you know how the story ends, then that sort of means that we've got to deal with the same question what are we going to do? How are we going to react? Are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to be a disciple? Or are we just content to call ourselves Christian? When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Okay, time out again. Wait just a minute. Do you know what you just said? First you asked for a favor, and then did you know what you just said, what, why you asked for the favor? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Your servant, someone you care about, is suffering terribly? We have been suffering terribly at the hands of Rome all our lives. You have caused us terrible suffering. That's your job. Your army, your empire, empire. Um, you do this for a living. You cause terrible suffering for a living. And now you want one of ours to relieve someone that you care about's terrible suffering, even though you would never do that for us? You never have. You never would. So what's Jesus going to do? Now factor in that if Jesus helps this centurion, there's a chance it's going to affect his influence with the crowd, with the Jews. I mean, if Jesus helps this man, there's a chance he loses the crowd. In fact, when word of this gets out, this whole movement that Jesus is here to start might get derailed before it even really gets going. But remember, Jesus came to introduce a new kind of kingdom, a new way to live, a new way to see the world. More specifically, a new way to see people in the world. And so, in keeping with his own teaching, what he'd said, he's going to illustrate what he just taught. He's going to choose to do good for an empire that did unimaginable harm to his people. To a, a person who represents a group that represents an empire that specialized in 
terrible suffering. For Jesus' friends, his family, in fact, think about it, it's the same empire that's going to crucify Jesus on a cross. And Jesus knows this. In this moment, Jesus knows this. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. Jesus says, okay, I'll do it. I'll go with you. I'll go to your home. I'll heal him. And again, the crowd would have been stunned. Well, you can't go to his home. You can't go with him. Remember, Peter pretty famously admitted he'd never set foot inside a Gentile's home before Jesus. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. And everybody thought, you got that right. You absolutely don't deserve to have Jesus in your home. And then there's this extraordinary statement of faith by the centurion. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. No, I don't need you to come into my home, Jesus. All I need you to do is speak the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus commends this man for his incredible faith. And then Jesus says, go. It will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. And once again, the crowd is stunned. He spoke as one who had authority. He is matching his words with his deeds. He wasn't kidding. All those things that we heard on the Sermon on the Mount, all those things that he's been teaching us, wow, what a great hashtag moment. He's doing those things. He actually expects us to do those things. He expects us to do good to people who don't do good to us. He expects us to to do good for people who don't look like us or act like us. He expects us to help people who don't even like us. So, back to us. It's no wonder we get really comfortable with a label. It's no wonder that we're content to come to church and smile and nod and and take notes and then kind of retreat back to what's comfortable. Because it's much easier to be a Christian than it is to be a follower of Jesus. It is much easier to do good to a stranger than it is to an offender. It's easier to love people who look like me and act like me and think like me. It's easier to be a Christian than it is to be a Jesus follower. And if that's what you choose, if you make the decision, I'll just be a Christian, I'm not that concerned about following Jesus. You're actually contributing to the challenges that we're facing as a nation, really as a world right now. And I'll tell you why. Because if you choose to just believe in Jesus, you're going to believe all the right things. You will. You'll believe all the right things. You'll believe that we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. You'll believe that we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us. You'll believe that uh, we're to love our enemies and pray for them. You'll believe that all men are created equal under God. You'll believe that uh, people's dignity and their value are assigned not by men, but by God. You'll believe all the right things. But when it comes down to acting on what you believe, when it comes down to doing something about that, 
It's just going to sit right there. It's just going to stay right there. If we don't decide to follow Jesus, we'll believe, but we won't act. We won't act on what we claim to believe because it's going to cost us something. Now, here's something kind of interesting. It's not surprising, but it's interesting. Jesus saw this coming. He saw us coming. (laughs) Jesus saw me coming. He saw a generation that was going to be pretty content, pretty comfortable to call themselves something but not really be Jesus followers. And that's why he ends the Sermon on the Mount the way he does. The last thing that Jesus says on that great Sermon on the Mount is sort of directed to wrapping up this point and hammering home this point. For those who would be content to sit and and listen and nod but not follow, here's Jesus' closing statement, the most famous sermon ever preached. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. Jesus says, if you hear what I'm saying but you don't do what I'm saying, you're a fool. You are fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself into believing that you're better off than you really are. And you're fooling yourself into believing that you have a relationship with God that you don't really enjoy. And the foolish man built his house on the sand. It looked great. But we know the rest of that verse, don't we? The rains fell, the streams rose, the winds blew against the house, and the house fell, and great was the crash. So, here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Those men and those women who really make a difference in the kingdom, they're not the men and the women who just believe right. And don't misunderstand me, of course we have to believe right, of course. But the people who are really making a difference, they don't just believe right. They act and they react when things aren't right. They do something about what Jesus has told them, even if it costs them. So, My invitation for all of us. Let's not be content with the label Christian. Let's start thinking of ourselves as followers of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus. And then when the centurions of our life show up, and they ask us to do something that kind of makes us uncomfortable, and everything that's in us kind of screams, you know, hold back. I I gotta hunker down. I gotta protect me and mine. I don't want this to cost me anything. I don't want to get out of my comfort zone. I don't want to share my time and my resources and my help and my love. Let's remember that God demonstrates his love. Demonstrates, shows, proves, does something. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still centurions, Christ died for us. When we were that guy, Jesus died for me. When I was that guy, when I was the guy who had no business, no right, coming to Jesus and saying, I need a favor, I need help, that's when Jesus died for me. And then he rose from the dead. And through the pages of Scripture, he looks back at us, and he never invites us to come be a Christian. Jesus never invited anyone, come be a Christian. 
What he invites us to do is the same thing he invited James and John and Peter and Mary and Martha and the rich young ruler. He invites us, follow me. Follow me. Live your life the way I live my life. And I will show you a a brand of love. I I will show you a, 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 a lifestyle, a kingdom It will change any heart, change any life, strengthen any marriage, heal any hurt, if you just follow me. Being a Christian is easy. Being a Jesus follower, that's hard. But again, Jesus never invited us to be a Christian. He invites us, in fact, he commands us, pick up your cross and follow me. Daily, pick up your cross and follow me. This morning, are you content with the label of Christian? Or are you ready to be a Jesus follower? Are you ready to be a disciple of Jesus? Are you ready to allow following Jesus to to cost you something to make a difference? Orlando's got a song that we're going to use as a song of encouragement. Uh, Those of you who are online, there's a, a link where you can access... Uh, the church here, if you've got a prayer request or if you'd like someone to get in touch with you, those of us in the auditorium, if there's anything on your heart that you'd like the prayers of your church family, you can meet us down front and let us know. Let's go ahead and be standing while we sing.